Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. As you turn there, uh, I would be remiss if I did not mention uh, that we have uh, someone that is returning to our body. I, I meant to mention this earlier and skipped over it in our notes. Uh, Kelly Stone is, is back here for the first time in, in, in months, uh, back from the hospital with, with her baby, Haley Morgan. I'm looking back. Is, is Kelly back there? There's Chrissy. There's Kelly and Steve and Haley Morgan. Kelly's been in, in the hospital since before Christmas, right? Yeah. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to see you and your new baby. It's been an, an answer to prayer. So many in this body have been, have been serving and sacrificing um, for them, and, and it's just been an amazing process to see. So welcome back, Kelly. It's good to see you, and good to meet Haley Morgan. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 17 through 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Paul writes this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As we have already stated, today is Palm Sunday. This Friday is Good Friday and next Sunday morning is Resurrection Sunday. And though we celebrate what took place uh, in those events, really every day of our life, this week is specifically set aside to focus on the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the very heart of the Christian faith is the fact that the holy and sovereign, glorious Son of God became a man, lived a, a sinless life for 33 years, and on a Thursday night, he's in the garden with his disciples while Judas Iscariot is leading soldiers to arrest him. Throughout the night, he's arrested, he's placed on trial, he's beaten, he is sentenced to death. At about 9 a.m. on that Friday morning, he is nailed to a cross. For six hours, he hangs in agony. And on that Friday, at about 3 p.m., he dies. Later that evening, he's removed from the cross and laid in a tomb. All day Saturday, he is in that tomb. And on Sunday morning, he rises from the grave. 
These are events that we specifically celebrate this week. But in these events are truths that we all need to remember continually. The Bible speaks of many different nuances of what exactly took place when Christ died on the cross. He died to save us. He died to redeem us. He died to bear the penalty for our sin. He died to satisfy God's wrath, to earn God's favor for us, to justify us, and more. The terms that describe these events abound. Atonement, substitution, salvation, redemption, expiation, propitiation, justification, reconciliation, and more. It's easy to forget or or simply just to never think about all that took place when Christ died on the cross. All of those terms that I just listed, there's, there's certainly some overlap in them, but they're all ultimately describing the same event. But in the passage that we just read, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21, Paul lets one of those terms that describe salvation sing its song loud and clear. And that is the doctrine of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, Paul goes on a theological rant on the doctrine of reconciliation. For for just a moment, he unleashes a torrent of this doctrine. Five times in five verses, he mentions this glorious word. And then he never mentions it again for the rest of the book. It's not a term that he uses often. He only uses it in... Three places regarding man's relationship with God, but when he unleashes this terminology of reconciliation, it cuts with meaning. It's a significant doctrine. It's an amazing doctrine. One that ought to drive us to our knees in thankfulness. But frankly, it's a doctrine that is easy for us to, get, to forget. So this morning... We are remembering this all-important doctrine of reconciliation. That's our goal this morning, to set this glorious doctrine before us. To see it in all of its glory and feel and apply all of the implications that result from it. Because that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. Reconciliation, it's a fascinating term. It's a term that you you may be very familiar with. You may be ready to define reconciliation right now. I'm sure there's some in this room who have never even heard the word used before. In an attempt to bring us all up to speed on exactly what this term references, I'm going to read to you from Romans chapter 5. It's a text that describes reconciliation perhaps clearer than any other place in Scripture. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Romans chapter 5 preaches, as 2 Corinthians 5 does, this doctrine of reconciliation. When Paul uses that term, what he is emphasizing is that there is a change in relationship that takes place in salvation. There is a change in relationship from enmity to peace. That is what reconciliation is. 
It is a change in relationship in which one goes from being enemies to God to at peace with God. The doctrine of reconciliation centers around that event that God would look at us no longer as enemies, but rather make us friends at peace. <laughs> this is an amazing, an amazing doctrine that we go from opposition to friendship. It's a fundamental change of relationship. That we go from being negative against God to positive with God. It's not just erasing what is bad, but offering to us what is good. We go from recipients of wrath to recipients of favor. We go from hostility to peace. Because of reconciliation, every true child of God can say, though I was an enemy, Though I was an enemy of God, I am now at peace with God. It's amazing. We, we, we just think on that statement for the rest of the morning. You, you were an enemy of God. I was an enemy of God. Think, think about this. The, the sovereign, all-powerful transcendent God was your enemy. He was your enemy. There is, there is no worse position imaginable. There's no more dangerous position to be in in all of life than to be an enemy of the God of the universe. And through no merit of our own, He sent his son. He sent his son for his enemies. Why, why would he do that? This is where on Wednesday nights in our student ministry, we're looking at some of the attributes of God. One of the ones that we were talking about just a few weeks ago was God's independence, that he's self-existent, self-sufficient, that he doesn't need us. We don't offer anything to him. He, he was fully satisfied in and of himself before the earth ever was. God doesn't send his son to the earth because he needs something from us. That there's nothing that we have to offer him. God was not looking or desperate for something. And so to get that one thing, he decided that he had to send his son to be fully satisfied. Why would God send his son for his enemies? It's unthinkable. It's un unfathomable. God paved the way for us to be at peace with him. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul launches on this amazing doctrine. But he does so in a context in which he is explaining some of the motivation behind how he 
can so faithfully minister the way that he does. In the, in the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole, and, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is explaining some of the motivation behind how he can so faithfully minister in the way that he does. In the past, in the church of Corinth, his apostleship had been under attack. Paul was needing to even defend his apostleship because there was a different word being preached to that church than the one true gospel. And so Paul is, is defending some of how and, and why he is able to minister faithfully in the way that he does. Paul says, I'm not doing this for selfishness. I didn't come to you. I didn't burden with you with ulterior motives. In the first verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that he, he's actually this whole time been looking to heaven. He wants to be present with the Lord, not apart from him. And so he's ministering towards that end. In verse 11, he says that there is a fear of the Lord that has been driving his ministry. He's able to minister faithfully the way that he has because he fears God. Verse 14, he says that it is the love of Christ that compels him to do this work. Verse 15, he says that he, he does this faithfully because Christ died that we would live for him, not ourselves. And in verse 17, the beginning of our text this morning, he gives yet another reason that he can minister as faithfully as the way that he has. And that is because Paul is a new creature. Paul's a new creature. He says in chapter 5, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Okay, so in Paul, in his life, he's observing and saying what is true of every child of God. That if you're in Christ, you're new. You are a new creature. The old has gone. The old things have left. They no longer dominate the life of the Christian. There are new realities. There is new life. There are new things that are present in every believer. Paul comments in verse 18 that all of these new things come from God. Anything that's new in the life of the believer comes directly from God. Look at verse 18. Now, all of these things, pointing back to verse 17, the new things that have come. Now, all of these things are from God. Paul says, look, if there is something new in me, if there is anything good in me, it is from God. It can only come from God. He alone can produce anything of value, anything that is right and good. He alone can produce anything new in me. Well, the question that's going to launch this doctrine of reconciliation is essentially this. How, how do we know that the new things in a believer are from God? How can Paul say with confidence that the new things that are present in him come from God? And the answer to that question is because God alone can give us a new relationship with him. That's how Paul answers it. Everything that is in me as a new creature comes from God. And I know it comes from God because he alone can give me a new relationship with him. And it's here, as Paul speaks about this new relationship with God, that he launches into the doctrine of reconciliation. As he does so, he's going to structure our time this morning. He gives us two reminders Two reminders about reconciliation for every new creature. 
two reminders about reconciliation for every new creature. Everything in this passage is going to build off of verse 17, that those in Christ are new creatures because they have been reconciled. And so the reminders that we're going to find in this passage are fitting for every new creature. So if you are a Christian this morning, if you are a new creature, then these truths are important for us to remember. If you are not a Christian, this is a great morning for you to become one because God is offering reconciliation. God is offering peace to you. And that is ultimately exactly what Paul's first reminder is. The first reminder about reconciliation for every new creature is God is the one who grants reconciliation. God is the one who grants reconciliation. In verses 18 and 19, Paul drives this truth home. Now this first reminder is communicated in a bit of a unique way. He's going to state a few truths in verse 18, and then he's going to repeat those exact same truths in verse 19. Verse 19 is going to essentially be a restatement of verse 18 with a couple further qualifications. In this, Paul is going to emphasize two parts in God's gift in reconciliation. We're gonna, we're gonna put them on the outline this morning. He's gonna emphasize two parts of God's gift in reconciliation. He gives us a new relationship with himself and he gives us a new ministry to the world. In God's giving of reconciliation, Paul breaks it down that, that he's giving us really two things in this gift of reconciliation. The first is a new relationship with himself and the second is a new ministry to the world. So first and foremost, we see in both verse 18 and 19, a new relationship with God. Verse 18 says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. God reconciled us to himself. Okay, so zooming out, we know that the new things in the life of every new creature come from God because the new relationship comes from God. We did not in any way bring this relationship upon ourselves. He reconciled us. God is the one who grants reconciliation. This is counterintuitive to the very nature of what reconciliation demands. In the process of reconciliation, the offender, the guilty party, is to go to the one who is offended and offer restitution so that the relationship might be restored. And while Paul is certainly fully aware that we bear a responsibility of repentance that leads to salvation, that is not at all his emphasis in this passage. We don't seek reconciliation, though we are the ones who have offended God. He seeks reconciliation. He alone grants reconciliation. He reconciles us to himself, Paul says, though we are offenders, though we are the enemies. God is the one who grants reconciliation. And he does this. Look back at verse 18. He does this through Christ. So not only does God grant reconciliation to his enemies, but he does it through the death of his only son. 
How unimaginable is that? To make an enemy his friend, he sends his son to die. That is the wonder of the doctrine of reconciliation. Because of the extent of our enmity against God, the cost for peace was not insignificant. It was not just a declaration of his will. His son paid our penalty. But he did not do that. This is a common misunderstanding of the doctrine of reconciliation. The son did not do what he did on the cross in spite of the father. A common misunderstanding of reconciliation is that God the Father is stated to be the one who is wrathful. And, and Christ is stated to be the one who has compassion on us because of the Father's wrath and gives up his life to satisfy God's wrath. Now there's some elements of truth in what I just said, but note that in this passage, this is not the Father versus the Son. The Father wanting to punish sin and the Son wanting to forgive sin. No, 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 reconciliation comes from the Father. This is the gift of God. Reconciliation is the work of the Father through the Son. He grants it. He gives it. He initiates it. We only respond to his gift. And the Son carries it out because it is the will of the Father. Make no mistake, while God is a wrathful God, the son does not go to the cross in spite of the father. The son goes to the cross in obedience to the will of the father. Look at verse 19. We're going to be jumping back and forth between verse 18 and 19. Verse 19, Paul repeats the same truth but adds more to it. He says, namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Very similar statement to what was just stated above about reconciliation in verse 18. It's a little bit of a difference in that he says that God was in Christ, not just reconciling us, but reconciling the world. God's work of reconciliation is offered to every man, the entire world. For reconciliation to take place, we must respond to God's offer of peace. But that offer, that offer is, is sufficient for every man. And if they would receive his gift that he gives, he would not count their sins against them. What an amazing statement. Yet another amazing statement in this passage that our sins would not be counted against us. They're forgiven. They're forgiven completely, not counted against us. How can our sins not be counted against us? We are sinners to our very core. How can our sins not be counted against us? Because they were counted to Christ. They were counted to Christ. Paul's going to explain that. We'll get there in a few minutes in verse 21. But before we get there, these truths must, these truths must produce in us, in us, worship and praise and thanksgiving and humility and wonder and awe that God would reconcile us to himself. That he would not count our sins against us. We don't deserve this. 
fact, we, we deserve wrath. We deserve wrath and he grants favor. We deserve death and he grants life. God alone grants reconciliation. First, in that he grants us a new relationship with himself. But that is not the only thing that he gives to every new creature. He does not just give us a new relationship to ourself. But what we see is that he also gives a new ministry to, for us to the world. He gives us a new ministry to the world. Look back at verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled, to, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gives to each new creature, each one who has been reconciled, he gives them a new ministry. But it's not just any ministry. It's not just like broadly the role of minister. He gives to every new creature a ministry of reconciliation. Which seems like a little bit oddly specific, right? Often we talk about how we're all gifted in different ways and how we all have different ways of ministering to, to the body. And that's absolutely true. But what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 is that those who are reconciled are given a ministry, a singular ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? Well, he leaves it fairly vague in verse 18. But as we said earlier, verse 19 clarifies and, and adds more comments on these truths. Look at verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And here it is again. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Verse 19 says he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. So this ministry of reconciliation involves a word. It involves something that we speak. The message of reconciliation. The truths that we have rehearsed for the last few minutes. The reconciliation that God offers to the world. That is the word of reconciliation. That is the message of reconciliation. What is that message? That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 5 is that not only has God given us a new relationship with him, but for those who have a new relationship with him, he's given them a new ministry. And it's a ministry of reconciliation. In other words, of taking that message that we received and, and taking that to the world. Verse 19 says that he committed us. He committed us to the word of reconciliation. He took the message of what he did in Christ. And, and the terminology there is that, that he placed it in us. We didn't even say that he entrusted it to us. He gave us the ministry of communicating that message to the world. Now note here in, in verses 18 and 19, God is still the one who is active here. God alone grants reconciliation. This is not yet, it's going to be soon, but it is not yet about our action. Paul's message, Paul's message is simple. God is the one who grants reconciliation, both a relationship of reconciliation and a ministry of reconciliation with the world. He alone is the reconciler. So if we zoom out to one of the purposes that Paul is accomplishing in this book, how can he minister so faithfully in the way that he has to the Corinthian church? Because he's a new creature. He's a new creature and everything new in him is from God. And when God saves someone, he sends them. 
That's what Paul's saying. How can I do this so faithfully? Because I'm a new creature, and when God saves someone, he sends them. When God reconciles us to himself, he does not just leave us in a stagnant state of peace. Rather, he places in us, he charges us with taking that message of peace to those who are not yet reconciled. So our status as reconciled and our service of reconciliation is all from God. Well, Paul is not done talking about this ministry that we all bear. But his perspective is going to change in these first two verses on what God has done in granting this relationship in this ministry to a second reminder about reconciliation for every new creature. The second reminder is that we are the ones who proclaim reconciliation. God is the one who grants reconciliation. We are the ones who proclaim reconciliation. Look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Paul starts this statement with the word therefore. He's pointing to what we've seen thus far this morning, the work of God in reconciling and charging our ministry of reconciliation. Because God grants these things, because he has given us these, he says we are ambassadors. We are ambassadors. Ambassadorship is a role that has spanned across history What it meant for Paul and the Corinthian church is essentially the same as what it means for us. The United States has ambassadors. Their job, more or less, is probably an oversimplification, but their job is to represent the president. They speak on behalf of him. They speak with his authority. They negotiate for him. In a very realistic sense, they are the mouthpiece for their authority. He speaks through them. In Paul's day, the same is true. An ambassador officially represented the one who sent him. He brought a message. He negotiated on his authority's behalf. Typically in Paul's day, an ambassador was not introduced uh, just as ambassador and their name. Rather, they were introduced by saying, this is the ambassador on behalf of whoever sent them. The ambassador was actually identified with whoever their sender was. The ambassador's identity didn't ultimately matter. What mattered about the ambassador was who they were representing. Paul says that we, those who have been reconciled, we are ambassadors, representatives, sent on behalf of Christ. He explains it further. He explains the sense in which we are ambassadors. Look back to verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were appealing to the world through us. God is calling to the world through us. The reconciled. We represent him. He speaks to us. 
That does not mean that the words that you speak are in any way inspired or new revelation, that God is communicating a new message through you. No, that's far from the truth. The revelation, the message of reconciliation has been communicated. The message has been revealed. We are called to take that word, take that message of reconciliation that, that the Bible lays forth. God's work for the world, and we're called to communicate it to the world. That is the word, that is the ministry of reconciliation. That is our responsibility as ambassadors. Paul says it's as though God is making an appeal. Bound up in that term is urgency. He's he's even, God God is urging through us. He's urging the world to receive the offer of peace. We have the all-important message. The message of reconciliation on our lips. It's not trivial. There's urgency here. With urgency, God has willed that this message go to all men. And to communicate that message, he commissions ambassadors. Fundamental to ambassadorship is that we carry out the will of the one who sends. When an ambassador speaks an error, it is a serious mistake. The authority who sent them is speaking through them. We are not, as ambassadors, speaking the words of any mere man. We are speaking the message from God. The authority of the message of reconciliation isn't us. It's the message from God. The authority of an ambassador is always in the one that he represents. If you've been reconciled with God, you have the absolute privilege to speak God's message to the world in such a way that it is as if God is speaking through you to the world. been a convicting week of study for me. So much to evaluate. Are those who hear me hearing the message that God has entrusted to me? Are those who hear me hearing the message that God has entrusted to me? Am I faithfully taking the word of reconciliation, the gospel, to those who need the message? Am I being a faithful ambassador? Imagine, imagine with me that a president who has decided to forgive the offenses and and offer peace to a nation with which he is at war. He sends his ambassador to negotiate this peace. The ambassador has one job. Tell them that we are willing to grant peace and offer friendship. So the ambassador goes, he meets with the leaders from this nation, he returns, and the president says, how did it go? And the ambassador responds, you know, just never really came up. Just never never really got around to talking about that thing, we were talking about other things, and I just kind of forgot about the message. That, That ambassador would be fired. 
It's bad ambassadorship. The ambassador is called to speak directly what the authority gives him. Understand that you, you, think about this, you are God's choice for taking his message to the world. It's actually a humbling reality. You are God's choice for taking his message to the world. Christians are the ambassadors. God's written word does not go forth on its own. It must be proclaimed. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, How will they, how will the world call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? The word must be proclaimed. It must be taken. There must be ambassadors. Do you see yourself as personally responsible to be taking to those around you this offer of peace from God? Perhaps one of the reasons that we so often, and I'm included in this, that we so often struggle with this is because we view it primarily as the role of of the corporate church rather than the individual. If you're understanding your role as ambassador to be inviting someone to church so that your pastor can evangelize them, you're misunderstanding your role. And please, invite unbelievers to church. This is good. But don't abdicate your role in the ministry of reconciliation. Perhaps in your mind you're thinking that uh, a, a pastor, one of your leaders, is, is going to, to do a better job at evangelizing this individual. Understand that you have all that you need to be a faithful ambassador. You know why? Because you're reconciled. If you have been reconciled, then you have all that you need to be a messenger of reconciliation. Evangelism is nothing more than offering to others what has been offered to you. The message of reconciliation is actually very simple. Paul puts it on full display in his next phrase. In his next few words, he gives us a manifestation of Paul fulfilling his ambassadorship. Look at the end of verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul starts ambassadoring. He says, I beg of you, I beg of you, be reconciled to God. This is the manifestation of ambassadorship. This is what it sounds like to be about the word of reconciliation. I beg you, I plead with you, Paul says. This is a request of the highest urgency. Be reconciled to God. It's a fascinating command. It's a command, but it's passive. In other words, he's saying you need to to do something, be reconciled. But by the way, God is the one who grants reconciliation. You receive it. We already saw Paul state that God is the one who gives reconciliation. God initiates this thing. We cannot pay what reconciliation costs. Only Christ can do that. So why then does Paul command them be reconciled? 
We know that in Paul's theology, there's this wonderful conundrum of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in salvation. God initiates and is fully sovereign over salvation. And in his sovereign plan, man is responsible to respond to this work in belief, to turn from sin and receive God's offer of peace through the work of his son. So he extends the call of an ambassador with the message of reconciliation on his lips, be reconciled. Obey God in faith and repentance to receive peace that only he can give. But he doesn't just leave it at that. In verse 21, one of the most glorious verses in all of scripture, he explains how that peace is possible for sinners before God. Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is one of the most amazing verses in all of the Bible. I don't think I'm over speaking when I say that. Jesus Christ, the holy and perfect God in flesh, he knew no sin. He knew nothing of it. There was not an inkling of sin in him, not a sinful thought, not a sinful motivation. Holy and entirely sinless. And yet, Paul writes that the Father made him sin. And that's not to say that the Father made Jesus a sinner. Jesus never sinned. But that the Father identified Christ with sin. At the cross, Christ is treated and viewed by God as sin itself. unfathomable to call Christ a sinner is blasphemy. Jesus did not ever sin. And yet, in perhaps the greatest wonder in the universe, God for his enemies makes Christ to be sin. Why? Verse 21, so that we who know sin intimately and cannot be separated from it might become the righteousness of God. He imparts our sin to Christ and imparts Christ's righteousness to us. Jesus takes on our sin and receives the penalty for us so that we might take on his righteousness and receive the reward for it. This is the gospel. This is the message that the ambassador carries. Let there be no mistake. This right here is the message that is to be on our lips. Man can be at peace with God. Because man can have the righteousness of God. How can that be? Because God in Christ became sin for us. If you are at peace with God, then you are armed with this message. The message of reconciliation. This is our ministry to the world. This is the responsibility of the ambassadors of God to call out, be reconciled to God based on the work of Christ. Our senior pastor often says, if you want to preach a convicting sermon, 
preach on prayer or evangelism because no one ever feels like they do that enough. Why preach a sermon like this? I'm fully aware that I, I have the privilege of standing in this pulpit maybe twice a year. And there was a level of fear and trepidation in my heart in coming to preach this text because I was terrified that it would come across as me wanting to preach this to a body so that it would be super convicting. I hope, you, I hope that you can, can see my heart in opening this text this morning. As leaders in this church, we've been having a lot of conversations lately about how this church is impacting Kansas City. Some of you have come and even asked questions about this. This is something that we want to visit regularly and evaluate regularly in our lives. We desperately want to see Kansas City reached with the gospel. God has planted us here and we want to see this church be a faithful witness with the message of reconciliation to Kansas City. Our, our conviction is that our church's best effort to impact Kansas City with the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the 400 people in this room right now would be ambassadors for Christ. You are the reconciled. And you are the ones who have been given the ministry of reconciliation. If there is any hope for the souls that fill Kansas City, it is only in the name of Jesus. And if the souls in Kansas City will find salvation in the name of Jesus, it's only because the reconciled are taking the gospel, the message of reconciliation to their colleagues and to their neighbors and to their friends and to their family members. You are the ambassadors to take this glorious message. We say it every week. We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples. There's only one way to make disciples. We are armed with one message. And it's one message only. Jesus Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So be reconciled. God in Christ reconciled us to himself. So if you have received that priceless gift, praise God and tell others.